This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's say a prayer, and then I'd like to get, get started. Father, again, I thank you for the wonderful truths you've given us as, uh, as a people. And we're getting assaulted from so many different angles, so many different ways. And the enemy takes something as good as extra knowledge and scientific knowledge and advances and Seems like everything anybody, anything humans do is eventually perverted and twisted. And I pray we'll be able to work through some of these issues here and be strengthened in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now we did touch on, I don't know how some of you have been here to some of the other meetings. Some of you see some new faces and the gist of what I've done and did I bring my book? Oh yeah, and there's this book. They're selling it here. It's called Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. And basically, we're looking at this idea in our society, people say, but it's science. And the moment they say something is science, if you ever argued with someone and they say to you, but it's science, what is the implication? Of course, the implication, well, how can you dare argue with this? It's science. And science uses, I don't think I'll have time to get into it, maybe at least not today, maybe I have a whole section of the book on the so-called scientific method. We've all been in, in high school. Do you remember being taught the scientific method and so forth? And this idea is that, well, once you apply the scientific method to something, you're, that's it. Truth is almost, almost deductively guaranteed to come out the other end. And it was fascinating. A lot of the literature I read, I read on the, in fact, I have a chapter in the book called The Myth of the Method. And, and they would say there's no such thing as the scientific method. You know, the, the method that you use for doing one thing in science could be completely different from something else. And it was fascinating, some of the stuff I read. But the point on this is, and again, as I stated earlier, the, the point is not to be anti-science. I'm not anti-science. I believe science does teach us, te it clearly teaches us things. And I believe it actually teaches us, and some would debate this, it teaches us things about the real world. Though there are actually some philosophers of science who say science doesn't teach us about the real world. Science teaches us only about how the world appears to us in our senses. And there's a vast difference, they would argue, between what the world really is and how it appears to our senses. And all, in the end, science could do is maybe give us a better view of how it appears to our senses. But there's a difference. You know, I use an analogy about our senses, and I have a whole section here, and maybe I'll get to this. Let's imagine, I, I want to right now, let's be quiet. Okay, we hear him next door, but <laughs> in the room right now, let's be quiet for a moment. Okay, say ideally you didn't hear anything. Now, I'm going to, I should have done this. I'm going to put something on on my iPhone and I'll be, it's funny, I, I'm going to give away some of my, I'm actually not that as conservative as him, but I'm an unabashed, unrepentant 
See if you can hear. Can you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Now the question I have is, and I'm a de almost always a. De I used to be a Democrat all the time. It's getting harder and harder. But I'm a, and I'm a Rush fan. I mean, I pay fifty dollars a year to listen to Rush because he's good at what he does. I don't have to agree with him. I like what he does. But anyway, I'm deviating. The point is, if I if we said nothing and it was empty. When I turn this on, where did that sound come from? It didn't originate in my phone. Where was the sound? It was here in the air. It was here in the air all around us, as real as my voice, as real as this chair is here. It's here in the room right now. Rush Limbaugh, it's right here. But what? Our senses don't allow us to pick it up. It needed to go through this device to show us what was real, what was here. Can you see what I'm saying here? And I'm saying that, that the point is, is that reality. We have our two eyes, our two, you know, and we get only a certain limited view of reality. And there's some that'll say all science can do is help us get a, another view, a deeper view, but still, it's still only a view of the way the world appears to us through our senses. And one of the great philosophical questions has been what is the difference between the world as it really is? and the way the world appears to us limited in our senses. I mean, we're avenues. How many angels could be in this room right now? I hope they're all good ones. Though I'm sure there's a few. Somebody must have drug in a bad one or two. <laughs> but the point is, there's a whole reality out there. I mean, they say right now that there are, at this moment, billions of muons from the sun are going right through us right now. The muon, I think they say a muon's so small you could take a, a thousand miles of steel and a muon will go right through it and never even slow it down. So the point is there's a much greater reality out there than we, with our senses, can pick up. And even science is still helping us pick up a reality. It's helping us view that reality a little bit differently, but it's still ultimately our senses. And that's fine. Again, some would say, okay, that's fine. That's how reality appears to us. But what is really there? What is really there? And can science really teach us what's there or not? I tend to think science does give us a view of the real world, but it's a very limited view anyway. Now, what I want to talk about, there was, anybody ever hear of one of the most famous books of the 20th century was called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by a man named Thomas Kuhn. And Kuhn wrote this book like in the 60s, and, and it was considered one of the most influential texts of all of the 20th century. And basically what the guy Thomas Kuhn said is he said, he's basically saying what I basically say in my book, Baptizing the Devil, though I say this in a very specific context. Kuhn was saying that science is nowhere near as rational, as objective, as sequential as people think it is. He's saying it's much more haphazard, much more subjective, much more culturally influenced and culturally laden than a lot of people believe. And for whatever reason, Kuhn's book 
created, it was a phenomenon. And to this day, people write books writing about Kuhn. Some take it even further than Kuhn, or some try to dismiss him completely. But the fascinating thing is you had one of this book by a scientist saying science is nothing, is nowhere near what people are led to believe that it is in terms of being this objective truth. In fact, I want to read you a quote in Kuhn's book. Kuhn captured, he quoted a man named Max Planck. Max Planck was one of the founders of quantum physics. Okay, it was just, he was a very highly influential scientist. And look at what, listen to this. If this is true, think about how different this idea is from how we commonly understand science. He's quoting Planck. A new scientific truth, wrote Planck, does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up familiar with it. That is, that's phenomenal. I mean, for somebody like myself, who grew up, I grew up with the secular, atheistic, scientific, rationalistic, materialistic worldview. It's just atoms in the void. Okay, and that was it. I believed in nothing supernatural, anything like that. And then, my first foray into the occult it's so funny, a friend of mine once said, Cliff, you're the only guy at the GC who had ever traveled in the astral plane. And that was my first foray into the occult. And my, took, all it took was one trip for me into the occult that I start to realize that, wow, the scientific, rationalistic, naturalistic worldview that I had been raised on was a little too narrow, okay? It was a little, I mean, obviously we don't deny the real physical world, though there are some who do. In fact, I read an article, I'm not going to get into it now, by a guy named Nick Bostrom. He's an Oxford philosopher. And I've preached on this in different contexts. And Bostrom argues, and I'm telling you, it's powerful arguments. He argues that we don't even exist. We're just computer algorithms by a race. But you know, he makes some powerful arguments for it. Okay. And that actually is an important point. Because one of the things, and I'm probably not going to get a chance to get on it in here, you study the history of science. People have had very, very good, logical, rational, scientific reasons for believing in things that we now no longer believe are true. But at the time, they had, you know, those of you here earlier, we talked about Galileo and, the, and, and Galileo's trial. You know, it wasn't just religious people. It wasn't just the poor Roman church. There were a lot of good science, there was a lot of good scientific evidence against Galileo and Copernicus's theory of the earth moving around the sun. In fact, one of the best they ever had was called the stellar parallax. If I hold my finger up and I look at that light, okay, and I see that light in front of me. Now, if the earth is moving, if I were moving, say, if I were moving and I come over here and I look up at that light, I see it from a completely different angle from the way I see it now, okay? 
And people said, well, let's look at the stars. And if Copernicus is right, and Galileo is right, and the earth is moving around the sun in six months, it's going to be on the whole other side of the sun. So let's look up at the stars. And they looked up at the stars, and they found no sterile parallax, stellar parallax. There was no indication whatsoever that the earth had moved because the stars looked in the exact same spot. It looked just like it was when I was standing here. And they said, see, there's scientific proof. And that was an understandable scientific proof. What do you think the problem was? Well, the stars are so far away. They were so far away that the motion of the earth, they couldn't detect it. They can now. They've got the devices. The point is they had, here, there's another reason. If the earth were moving, I'm going to, I'm going to give you scientific evidence right now. The earth doesn't move. Okay? Let's say the earth were rotating that way. Okay? If I throw this book up and the earth is moving, shouldn't it land back here? Oh, okay. And people say, how come birds don't get blown back? How come things, you know, you know, so, and the point is, they had good scientific reasons for believing in things that were wrong, okay? And you wonder today, I got this great quote, I quoted probably twice in the book, by a man named Alfred North Whitehead. And Whitehead said, well, he, he died like 1920. Whitehead said, when I was in college at Cambridge, I studied mathematics and scientists with some of the best teachers in the world, and I was very good at it. And I said, I did very well at it. And then he said, I've lived to see every foundational assumption in mathematics and science overturned in my lifetime. And he says, and now we're going to say we have certainty? And it was fascinating. This guy, and math and science, the foundational assumptions overturned. Anyway, again, the point of all this is, you know, see, if you had a practicing scientist here, he might say, duh. You know, every scientist knows this. And the fact is, I think most scientists do understand that. But the fact is, the average Joe Blow in the general public, like yours truly, and like a lot of us, I never knew, I, mean, I was always been a fairly well-read guy, read a lot. And then just in the past five, six years, as I started reading some of this stuff about the philosophy of science, in fact, the interesting thing too, 95% of the material that I'm sharing with you or that I've gotten from, in, put in this book, I got from reading atheists and or evolutionists. But that's pretty much almost, I think I read one Christian book on the philosophy of science. Almost everything else I've read, and I learned about science and the limits of science, I got from reading atheists and or evolutionists. In fact, if you were here earlier, I told you the teaching company course by Dr. Stephen Goldman. I know he's an evolutionist. He has a course on evolution. And yet it was his stuff that opened my eyes to, the, to some of these limitations, which again, is, is not news to the average scientist, but to the rest of us poor schnooks, who are constantly being, well, science says this, science says that. But again, this quote, I thought this quote by Thomas Kuhn, or this quote where Kuhn quoted Planck, I mean, it's saying a new theory is not accepted by the evidence. It's when an older generation dies off who believe the old one and new people who are used to it accept it. Okay, now that's fine if the theory happens to be true. But of course, that's the whole question. In fact, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm reading now Charles Darwin's Descent of Man. 
It's boring on one level, but it's fascinating on another. And he does talk about the older generation who fought, fight, fought them on evolution and how they're dying off and there's a new generation. And it's, it's fascinating. If you ever want to read a fascinating book, the author's name is Thomas Wolfe, secular writer. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of Speech. And he goes after a guy named Noah Chomsky, which is a whole other issue. But then he goes after Darwin. And it's fascinating. As far as I know, Wolf's an evolutionist. He might even be an atheist. But he goes after Darwin. And I have a great quote from Wolf in there on that. But anyway, the point is we've got this quote. If, 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 if true or even partially true, what does Planck's thought say about the objectivity of science? A scientific proof, a scientific truth. Oh, I'm not even, I don't know if I doubt I'll have time to get into proof. To this day, first of all, there's no agreed definition of science. You will find that they argue over. It's very difficult for them. It's called the demarcation problem. What is the difference between science, bad science, and pseudoscience? Okay. When the tobacco company paid PhDs in biology and chemistry, biology and chemistry to do research for them, and for years they were telling us, oh, tobacco's not so bad. We don't know. The evidence is out. These were bona fide scientists. They were PhDs in chemistry, in physics. Were they doing real science? No. I mean, you're saying the science might have been skewed? I mean, you're saying scientists, science could be skewed? So, you know, in other words, but this is science. You see, you know, we're talking about the objective, rational pursuit of evidence and data, and you put it in a lab, and you, you do, oh my goodness. For a while, I used to get on a website called Retraction Watch, and they would, all they do was cover all the scientific papers that had been retracted for either outright fraud or just, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how much of that goes on out there. Okay, and again, but you think, but oh, this idea, this is science. And well, the bottom line in the end, the science is a human endeavor. And, it's, and, and really, and I, I had a whole section on this. Science is, I'm going to throw out two words for you. You know the word epistemology? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Now, what, it's not what we know. Epistemology is the study of what do we mean when we say we know something? Do you ever think about that? What does it mean to say you know something? If I say I know my back is killing me, if I say, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. If I say, I know I was born in New York. If I say, I know that Jesus is coming back. I know 2 plus, did I say 2 plus 2 equals 4? Yeah. I know that I am tired. <laughs> I'm using the word no here. To mean something, the same thing, but I know every one of these things differently. I know that my back hurts different than I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay? And epistemology is the study of how we know what we know or how we think we know what we know. And yet, actually, it's one of these, and oh, I would love to get into this, but it's not, but how do we... The problem with epistemology is, how do we know that our epistemology is right when the very thing we're questioning 
is how do we know anything to begin with, okay? And that actually is a very profound point that has to do with all our knowledge, the limits of all our knowledge, including scientific knowledge. There is a point where all not knowledge comes to an end, even scientific knowledge, and then you have to take a leap. People say, well, the same thing happens in religion. Yeah, I know, and it's called faith. I have very, very good logical, rational reasons for my beliefs. Ooh, Adventism, my goodness, this picture fits together. It's almost scarily well. I mean, just the pieces fit together so well, but there reaches a point where my justification stops, and then I take a leap of faith. Well, folks, they do the same thing in science as well. They'll, they'll die before they'd ever want to admit it. But anyway, Kuhn, that quote was in Kuhn's book. Anyway, but again, a truth should be accepted or rejected based on proof, not on, you know, on data, but certainly not on which generation of scientists happens to come and go. But fortunately, according to Kuhn, science doesn't work anywhere near as rationally or as objectively. Science does not allow humanity, in a sense, to step out of itself. Okay, to step out and get some uber-objective view of the world and, and to look at the world. When you do science, you're really just... You're part of the world, and you're just looking at the world from inside the world. And Kuhn talked about human subjectivity, the values, the prejudices, the preconceptions, and the assumptions, both individual scientists, and this is fascinating too, science is a communal endeavor. Okay? You get a whole bunch of scientists, a whole bunch of people, Ideally, working together, checking on each other, balancing each other out, and so forth, in order to come to their conclusions. But it, he says, it's the, 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 high, the scientific community, instead of, according to Kuhn, instead of science proceeding in this rational, step-by-step -step accumulation of knowledge, Cultural, historical, psychological factors cannot be weeded or purged out of, of it. Let me read you another quote here. He's, listen to this quote. The conclusions, he said, of scientists are possibly determined by his prior experience in other fields, by the accident of his investigation, and by his own individual makeup. An apparently arbitrary element com compounded of personal and historical accident is always a formative ingredient of the beliefs espoused by a given scientific community at any time. Arbitrary elements, accidents, individual makeup. I don't know, it sounds like finger painting. Okay. Now, maybe you've ever heard of the word, we've all heard the word paradigm. Paradigm, a model, huh? A model. Thomas Kuhn, the one made this idea of a paradigm famous. And basically, what a paradigm is, is the model. It's the worldview that a scientist has and that he works in or she works in. It's the assumptions, it's the parameters, it's the model on which they do their science. And the important, and, and every, they have to, they have to have certain assumptions. You have to know what you're looking for. You have to have a certain basic understanding of what you're looking for, a certain basic understanding of how the real world works, a certain basic understanding of what tools you cannot use or can or cannot use in the paradigm, okay? And, he's, and that's fine. That's how science works. Now, the important thing to remember, and this is crucial, 
Somebody here said it's a, a set of received beliefs. Okay. Now, here's the thing that's super important to understand. The scientist never questions the paradigm. The paradigm is the thing that does the questioning. It's the, in other words, let me give you a simple example. We're Americans, so we like American football. Ever watch this? I tried one time to watch a soccer game. I'd rather watch somebody parallel park than watch a soccer game. It is the most, bro, one stepped on my toe, boo-hoo-hoo, claws bit me, green card, I'm a Ralph. I don't want to insult anyone anyway. But I got on Hope Channel Live one time. They couldn't do anything about it. And started mocking soccer and all oh, the poor host Candace. Oh, no, 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 no. We, uh, you know, but anyway, in American football, when they throw, I thought the funniest thing I was watching on YouTube football follies, and some football player got mad at the ref, threw the football at his face. I thought I would laugh, and my wife thought it was horrible. I thought it was the funniest thing I ever saw. He just got frustrated, just flipped the ball in his face. And, of course, what did the ref do? Pulled out the flag and threw the flag. Now, the point is, when they throw the flag in a football game, what are they doing? They are not challenging the rules of football, are they? They're not challenging the rules. The flag is thrown to show whether something or another violated the rules. Okay? But the rules of the game are not, that's not what it's all about. And Kuhn argues that a paradigm, a paradigm are these subjective, these rules of the game, it's the model. It's the model in which they investigate everything, okay? And he says, Kuhn talks about what he calls normal science. And that's like when they're just working within the rules of their paradigm, their model. But again, they're not questioning the paradigm. They're not questioning the model. The paradigm in the model is what you use to question everything else. Does it fit in the paradigm? Does it? And if it doesn't fit, it's rejected. Okay? And that's how he argues that science works. Then he says what happens is you start getting what they call anomalies. And uh, here's, let me read you this quote. This is from an Adventist scientist. Scientists do not try to test the paradigm. This is crucial. But assume it is true and use it to guide their exploration of new phenomena with the par- within the paradigm's domain. The process cocoon called normal science because that is what scientists normally do. Okay, but see, this shows you the assumption that's involved in science. Okay, this, the, his, the, this con- in other words, Kuhn's paradigm, this model, is another, it's, 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 it's in a, it shows what happens when science is done. It shows the assumptions, the subjectivity. They have this paradigm, they have this model, and everything is interpreted through it. I have, and I deal with this in the book, a perfect example of a paradigm. I mentioned you to the teaching company. Well, I got 36 lectures on the origins of life by a man named Dr. Robert Hazen. And there were 36 lectures. I listened to every one of them. And I got the transcripts. And Hazen, it was fascinating to me from this model of, see, from Thomas Kuhn, from the model 
of Kuhn's understanding of a paradigm. Hazen starts out the lecture. He says, I'm starting out on the assumption. This was fascinating to me. On the assumption that life began 3.4 billion years ago on Earth through the normal processes of chemistry and physics working through water, rock, and air. Okay, that was his assumption. That really, in a sense, was the paradigm. That formed the template for all that came after. And it would really, in many ways, it was a fascinating set of lectures because he spent a number of lectures looking at the different models for how they believe life began. Many of you probably read about the Miller-Urey experiment, I think in the 50s, where these guys, Stanley Miller and Howard Urey, in a lab synthesized some very simple amino acids, the building blocks of protein. And it was the whole idea was they wanted to, oh, what was the word? They wanted to mimic what they believed could have been Earth's early conditions and life began like a, a shallow pool. And they did all this stuff and they created these amino acids. Well, it caused quite a hoopla, like, wow. And, you know, and I'm sure the way it was spun, you know, evidence of how life began, you know, on and on and on. Now, the, anyway, this was quite the thing for a while. And then other scientists came along and said, no, 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 that can't be right. And they came up with another theory. Some argued that can't be right. They argued that life began in a deep thermal vent in the water. A thermal vent, there was warmth, you got heat, you got water. And there was a popular theory, and I think some still push it, that life be started in a thermal vent. Well, later on, somebody came along and said, nah, 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 that's a load of hooey. And they said, no, no, we think life got started in, in shale, in, in compressed shale. And this guy told how he did experiments where they compressed rocks and did something just really tons of pressure because I thought that might have been the place where they, life began. Another theory was that life began in molten rocks, a thousand degrees centigrade, okay? That was one theory. Others said, no, no, life began in clay. Others said, no, life might have commanded it from a, from a, from, you know, back, a droid, yeah, an android, not an android, that's a, a meteorite, yeah, yeah, a meteorite. Now, they, the fascinating thing First of all, it was fat, you know, this, and this is the other myth of these objective scientists seeking truth. They were cutting each other's throats. The nastiness and the vitriol. You'd think they were Christians arguing over the nature of Christ, you know. And, and, but it was, for me, from the perspective of interest in the philosophy of science, it was fascinating because I don't think so they had all these different models. Not one of them worked. Not one of them worked. And I thought to myself, did it ever, and I said, I don't think it ever entered this man's mind, this PhD in biology. Very good lecturer, by the way. The teaching company gets really good teachers. But I don't think it ever entered his mind that maybe the reason none of these models worked was because his paradigm was faulty. And yet I don't think it entered his mind, but why should it? That wasn't what he was questioning. In other words, the paradigm wasn't being questioned. That was being assumed. Everything you looked for, you looked for through, I guess, almost a way to use it from a scriptural that we could understand better as Adventists. Somebody comes up with some theological idea. 
What are we tested by? The scripture. Scripture, spirit of prophecy, if you, if you go that way. But that's, in a sense, what the paradigm is. We don't, somebody doesn't come up with a new, a new theology and they say, well, you know, that's contrary to the scripture. Well, then we're just going to have to chuck the scripture. Okay? That's not how it works. It's, that's the foundation, scripture. Well, with science, that's what a paradigm is. And it was fascinating to listen to this guy because I realized it never entered his mind to change his paradigm. Okay? And that's fine, except if there's one problem. What's the problem here? What's the problem with this paradigm? It's wrong, okay? I mean, it's wrong. I mean, you know, from our perspective, we're saying, God, I think it's wrong. So everything you've got, you build, he's building from a model that's wrong, okay? Now, what Kuhn does, what, here's where Kuhn's stuff, and again, I can't overestimate the influence of these security people. My work computer, every five minutes it shuts me out. Yeah, I told you that already. <laughs> Somebody got a hold of a GC. Well, I'm again, yeah. I'm not supposed to, yeah. Okay, now. Oh, yeah, this was actually a fascinating thing, too. I read this was fascinating. For 1,500 years, Aristotle's science dominated Western thought. As I said, the whole Galileo trial was an example of what happens when Christians compromise and meld their faith with the latest and greatest science. And if the science happens to be wrong, they look like idiots. And that's what the Romans did. And that's why they came out looking like idiots in the Galileo trial. And, uh, but Aristotle also taught that the, the universe was perfect, that this, below the moon, earth, there's corruption and degradation. You get above the moon, the cosmos is perfect. And apparently in the 1400s or the 1200s, there was this massive supernova that Western astronomers completely missed, that the Chinese not wrapped in the Aristotelian paradigm. They saw it and they noticed. But Western astronomers, even though it occurred in the sky, they were, their minds were so shaped by the paradigm that they completely missed the supernova. Because according to the theory, it wasn't supposed to be there. Okay? So anyway, that is what you call a paradigm. Now, that, everything with Kuhn here is not that, that's nothing, that's nothing remarkable. But here's where Kuhn got, what Kuhn said happens, what Kuhn said happens is that eventually, eventually you ha keep getting things called anomalies. And these anomalies are things that don't fit. You keep finding too many things that don't fit, and then eventually, I'm going to just pull down here. I got so much, so much information here. Let me, let me jump down. And uh, things that don't fit, and then eventually, all right, come on. Here's his most controversial idea. You work in a paradigm. But then you start having what he calls anomalies. Hey, this doesn't fit. And this doesn't fit. And this doesn't fit. And eventually he gets what you call a crisis in which the whole paradigm collapses. And he has what he calls a revolution. And you get a whole new paradigm with a whole new set of assumptions and a completely different way of looking at the world, 
a completely different way of doing science, a completely different way of looking at the evidence. And he comes up, he says, these things are totally opposite of each other, and they're, you know, and I, I mean, Kuhn took the things somewhat extreme. But the point is, you know, the point is, which is the correct one? What are we doing here? It's, for Kuhn, it's not a modification of the old one. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. I mean, think for a minute. Imagine the shift. Your whole life you believed the earth sat immobile at the center of the universe. And everything circled it, on and on. To suddenly wake up one day and look at the sky and see a whole different world out there. The, the, the sun moving is really the earth going around, the earth spinning on its axis, and on and on. It's a whole new way of looking at the world. Now, this is the important point. When you have a revolution, when you have a paradigm shift, where's the change? What changes? Huh? The paradigm. So. Where is the paradigm located? Okay. The change, it's not in the rocks. The sun didn't, when they went from an Aristotelian Ptolemaic paradigm to a Copernican paradigm, did the sun change the way it was moving? Nothing. A paradigm shift is a total subjective change in the human mind. It's scientists and the scientific community changing the way it views reality. The reality hasn't changed. The world is exactly the way it was before, before the paradigm shift. What changes are human beings and the way human beings look at it. And the thing that was revolutionary about Kuhn and so controversial is that Kuhn was saying, doesn't mean the new paradigm is right. Doesn't mean they're working towards more truth. You know, the, we have this idea, you know, Newton said his famous quote. See, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with Kuhn. I'm not saying, you know, and, and some people don't agree with him. Some people take it further than Kuhn. The reason I even bring any of this stuff up and the reason I touch on that in my book is I just want to help free people from the, the myth of our, era, of our age, the great myth of 20th, 21st century Western intellectual life, that it's science, therefore it's truth, and we have to submit our views to it. And if the Bible says something, but science... Science backed by laboratory experiments. Oh, get off on exper Oh, that's a whole new. Experiments and data and all this stuff. Well, then, the only logical, rational, intellectually honest thing to do is to surrender your biblical views. And don't even get me started. I, I talked about this earlier. Christians are notorious at this. I said earlier... The scientists were the ones who fought Darwin in the beginning. The ones kowtowing and accepting it were the Christians. And I've, you know, I've often wondered, why do Christians do that? Well, I think, you know what it is? Look, there's always been a lot of very anti-intellectual strains in Christianity. And, Chris, you know... It's some pretty wild stuff. God came down and born of a virgin. You know? The creator of the universe. Because John 1, 1 through 3, anything that was not made that was made was made by Jesus. So this vast creation, the creator, comes down and born of a virgin, born as a human being, and then, I mean, the whole thing, and it can sound pretty bizarre, okay? Especially for sec. I mean, I grew up secular. You have no idea how weird all this stuff was to me, you know? 
And those of you born and raised in the church, you have no idea how weird Adventists could seem to secular people. Now I'm one of them. You know, now I'm a full-fledged, I'm probably just as weird as a... But I tend to think there's this idea they, they don't want to be seen that way. They want to be seen as sophisticated. They want to be seen as, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, again, I don't know individual motives. But as I said earlier, I showed you earlier some of the sad things people have to do, what Christians do to try to get to fit evolution in the Bible. But anyway, all right, I've lost my train of thought here now. Where was I? All right, we are back with Kuhn with the paradise. Oh, yeah, the only reason I'm showing you this is even if Kuhn is not 100% right, it still shows the idea that you don't have science. It's this, you know, Newton once said, if I did anything, I stood on the shoulder of giants. And there's this idea of this cumulative building of scientific knowledge, and it's moving closer and closer and closer to truth. Now, I don't know. Maybe in some ways it really is. I really don't know. But Kuhn's idea, which was revolutionized, the whole thought about science said it doesn't work that way at all. You got one paradigm, it falls apart. They create a whole new one, a whole new set of assumptions, a whole new way of viewing the world. And maybe it's closer to truth but you have no way of ever knowing absolutely whether it is or not. Because no matter, you know, they could have a scientific theory. Those of you who were here earlier, maybe explain to somebody who's new the fact that the theory works or that the theory makes accurate predictions in many ways has absolutely nothing to do with whether the theory is true or not. There's a whole long history of scientific theories that worked, that made accurate predictions, that have later been overturned and believed no longer being true. How can it not be true? It works. Well, that's fine. It's a, it's a total separate issue from whether it's true or not. Anyway, the whole point with the Kuhn thing, the whole point with the Kuhn, what time? All right, we got a few more minutes. Are there any... We stop at a quarter of, right? Okay, I want to bring up one more thing, and then if you got any questions, I kept on saying I'm going to give you time for questions, and then I just... It's funny, I don't particularly like public speaking, but once I get up, I can't keep my mouth shut. So, But you ever hear the thing, and I deal with this in the book, and it's, a, it's fascinating to look into it. You hear the term peer review, but it's peer reviewed. It's peer reviewed as suddenly as if, whoa, whoa, it's peer reviewed. Wow, that's it. You know, all questions stop, all mouths cease because it's peer reviewed. But here's the thing, that's fine. Here, though, some fascinating studies have done where people have purposely put errors in papers, told them there are errors in there, warn them beforehand, and they peer review it and they don't see it. Okay. But when a, somebody peer reviews a paper, what are they doing? What are they challenging? Or what are they not challenging? The paradigm. See, all they're going to do is check and see whether what you're doing, your science, your conclusion, whether it fits with the paradigm. Okay? That's all they're doing. And woe be, woe, woe, woe be to the, particularly when it comes to creation evolution. Hey, the only difference between the scientific community today and the Romans is the Romans had the political power to put you in jail and get your head chopped off, okay? But the point is, I mean, they're very intolerant. 
scientific. I mean, it's amazing. I, I've come to see science as the most intolerant branch of knowledge, of, of theory. They're worse than theologians. They're worse than Christians or religious people. It's, but anyway, but the point is, they're just checking everything in the paradigm. And that's fine, except what happens if the paradigm is wrong, okay? And, uh, and then when you have a whole paradigm shift. So again, the point is, this, is, this was Kuhn's contribution. And it, re- it shook everybody up. And to this day, there, like a whole cottage industry arose by those who think Kuhn was full of it or those who took it much further than Kuhn, much more radically than Kuhn. And again, I bring this up. I'm not saying I, 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 he's 100% right. I'm bringing it up only to show that the, for most of us, when we hear it's science, we have this idea of this cold, logical, rational, objective, peer-reviewed truth, and so on. And that's not even close to what's really, really going on. Because I, I realize I lost my trust. Remind me when I come back to, to pick up about epistemology. All right, any questions? If you got any questions, and just before we take a break, anything on what I've talked about right here, if you think I'm full of it and want to challenge me on it, go for it, you know, go for it. I'm, I'm still waiting for a good review to challenge me and maybe point out things that I need to fix. Go ahead. Well, I'm not going to get into the details of that. I'm not, all I'm going to say, like with carbon dating, I don't know enough about it. All I know is for carbon dating, for this stuff to work, you have to make certain assumptions. And they might be reasonable assumptions. They might be assumptions that if I knew what you knew and believed what you would believe, I would say, hey, I've got good reasons to believe that. You know, and on and on and on. But the fact that I might have good reasons to believe it has abs- is, is almost totally separate question from whether it's correct or not. Okay, now, I don't know that much about this, the dating system. All I know is I have a very good friend of mine. He's an Adventist. He runs one of the hobnobbers at A Today. And my wife can't stand him. She goes, that guy does nothing but attack you in public. And every time, you know, I was out at Loma Linda a couple months ago. I had like eight-hour layover for a plane. I just hung out at his house. You know, I said, hey, Eric, I need to stay at your house for a while because I got a 10 hours off, eight or 10 hours. Just come on over and we hang out. But my wife says, he's, oh, all the man ever does is publicly attack you. I said, yeah, but we're friends, you know, <laughs> we're friends. But he's into carbon dating. He's into the dating. And I asked him a question. And this is important. And again, this is because I've delved a lot into some of the philosophy behind this. And maybe some of this might not mean much to some of you. Others, you might be able to get up here and explain this stuff better than me. But I said Irv on his name, Irv Taylor. Everybody, you know, Irv, he's a good friend. You know, Irv, my buddy. Irv, he always says, my good friend Cliff Goldstein, and then goes on to skewer me. But, you know, it's... uh, I, don't, I never take it too personally. I'm glad. It's a good thing I don't or I would be in bad shape. But I said, Irv, at what point, because you build belief on, a, on an assumption, on various assumptions, things that you have to believe are true in order for that stuff to work, okay? You've got to assume that the decay rates are the same as they've always been, okay? And if we were here earlier, the world before the fall, the world before the flood, was a radically different world than the world we live in now. Okay? A world where nothing died is a radically different world. So you've got to assume. But, but I said, Irv, at what point, what's the furthest down you go 
In other words, I want to get to the further in your assumptions you go, as far down as you can, that's as rock solid as could possibly be. You know, just a belief that's just rock solid. You know, I don't want something on the top, you know, yeah, yeah. but I want something down a bit, rock solid. And he looked at me and he said, but science doesn't work that way. Well, no kidding, okay? No, I said, I know that because I've spent years reading on this stuff. But anyway, anyway, look, let's take a break. And yeah, 3.45, we're supposed to stop it. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.